Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come. Come in and know that you are welcome. Welcome to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify, and to the now-expanded District of Wonders, as mentioned during your earlier visits. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm sorry. Go wipe your feet. Doff your sweaters, your weather gear, grab a warm beverage and a chum, dip some treats, and find a place. Okay? Yes, I know, Mahler, I am a bad host. As I was saying, now the District of Wonders has five neighborhoods, Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, Tales to Terrify, that's us, and now Far-Fetched Fables. The elves, the trolls, the nanobites have worked their twitchy little digits to the bone and gristle over the past few weeks and have brought forth a whole new realm. Go there. The place will take you on explorations into the world of fantasy and on voyages into the rare and mysterious lands that lie outside familiar reality. If forging paths of wonder, magic, and delights is your druthers, join Nicola Seton Clark on the weekly journey. It's at, well, it'll be on our homepage, but it's pretty simple. It's www.farfetchedfables, all one word. Dot com. There. Now, are we settled? Excellent. Yes, one more thing before we set forth on tonight's journey here in the Nook. If you're a writer, if you're interested in writing, if you're curious about what writers must endure and overcome, you might want to spend 99 
U.S. Sense on a new book from This Is Horror's Publisher of the Year, Crystal Lake Publishing. It's called, curiously enough, Horror 101, The Way Forward. Joe Maynard, Crystal Lake's publisher, says that Horror 101, The Way Forward, is perfect for people who are, prepare yourselves for a long list, suffering from writer's block, looking to get published, starting their writing career, looking to expand their writing repertoire, planning on infiltrating a different field in horror writing, looking to pay more bills with their art trying to further their careers, trying to establish a name brand, planning to self-publish, looking for motivation and or inspiration. Horror 101 is also for people who are not sure where to take their writing careers, who want to learn more about the pros in horror, and for people who simply love the genre. This is a huge book. The table of contents represents a virtual who's who of the field, Horror 101, The Way Forward, will be available only as an e-book and beginning April 30th. And as mentioned, it will sell for only 99 U.S. cents. And yes, I have an article in it. It's called Writing Aloud. Stop by crystallakepub.com and get all the information about Horror 101, The Way Forward. That'll also be on our homepage. That's TalesToTerrify.com, of course. Ah, there. Now, settled? We begin. It is the Stoker season, Bram Stoker Awards season. I was going to do all six of the Stoker-nominated short fiction tales in just two shows. That would have been three stories per show, but that would have made for some very long evenings here. So, taking a leaf from Peter Jackson's playbook, we're going to hear the six tales in three two-tale evenings. A word here. I think of all the genre forms, horror is probably the hardest to get a room full of people to agree upon. There will always be a few who will buck the consensus and just hate whatever the others love, and of course, vice versa. It is a field of fiction, the very name of which asks for an emotional response. Horror is an emotion, not a genre, as many authors and critics within the form are fond of saying. And for each reader, writer, critic, what conjures that emotion is going to be different. For some... Horror only arises when something supernatural enters the tale. Call it ghost, zombie, vampire, beastie of whatever form or shape. Unless the agent of the fright is something unique and strange to the world in which we all live, the tale is not true horror. To be good horror, then, that critter has to have a new twist, a spin on the hoary old ghost, bloodsucker, shambling, dead motif, whatever. For others... The horror must arise within the psyche of the central monster, who must be human and flawed, of course. His or her need to do something awful, something inevitable, something we see coming but cannot avoid is the source of the terrors that bump about in the night. I have heard, and I will say been part of, some fierce arguments that echo from dark night to rosy dawn with nothing resolved except 
the sure and certain knowledge of each participant that all the other participants have their heads up their butts. Well, we'll avoid that. The Stokers, the Stoker Awards, do not pretend to resolve any of these issues. They seek only to give a nod to good writing, to outstanding achievement in crafting novels, poems, tales, films, et al. In that form, we, most of us at least, can agree is horror. Here are the titles of all six Stoker-nominated stories for this season. Night Train to Paris by David Gerald. Lisa Minetti's The Hunger Artist. Michael Bailey's Primal Tongue Fireman. John Palisano, The Geminis. Michael Reeves' Code 666. And Patrick Freiwald's Snapshot. And now for fiction. Tonight we will begin with the shortest and the longest of this year's six Bram Stoker-nominated tales. At just under 2,000 words, Patrick Freivold's Snapshot is the shortest of the year's nominees, and Code 666 by Michael Reeves is the longest. Patrick Freivold is a two-time nominee for the Stoker, and despite my pronunciation of his name, he is an American— In addition, Patrick is a teacher of physics, robotics, and American Sign Language. In addition to being an author of note, he is a self-employed beekeeper and the coach of an award-winning competition robotics team for high school students. Patrick and his wife live in western New York, have two dogs, a parrot, a cockatiel, six cats, and several million stinging insects And they're thinking about adding chickens, maybe some sheep. They grow most of their own food, you see. And Patrick makes his own somewhat, sometimes, drinkable wine, he says. He is also the author of Twice Shy, Special Dead, Twice Shy Book 2, Blood List, Love Bites, Jade Sky, and many others. You can find him on Amazon. Look him up. And here is our first Stoker-nominated short story of the season, Snapshot, by Patrick Freivald. Liz hissed as her pregnant belly touched the cold marble sink. She brushed back a lock of auburn hair, spat out her toothpaste, and rinsed the cloying mint taste from her mouth. She stepped back from the vanity and frowned. You look beautiful, Scott said, squeezing in behind her and sliding his arms up under her shirt to her abdomen. Just thinking about this, I love you, she grunted. I look like a bloated hippopotamus. A beautiful bloated hippopotamus, Scott grinned at her in the mirror, flashing perfect white teeth in a perfect, rugged face, crowned with perfect blonde hair. The star anchor of Rise and Shine America always looked perfect before he left the house. Hell, he looked perfect with bedhead and a five o'clock shadow. She closed her eyes and leaned back into him. I'm just ready to be done with all this. I'm tired and fat, tired of being fat. His hand slid upward, 
and squeezed her breasts. They were swollen and tender, and his hands rough, but she didn't stop him. He whispered in her ear, A couple weeks. You'll be back in bikini shape in no time. She smiled as he nibbled her ear and craned her neck as his lips moved lower. She turned around and kissed him long and hard. She nibbled his lip, then bit a little harder. She pressed against him, inhaling his scent, but when his hand slid lower, she shoved him back into the wall. None of that now. You need to get to work. She stole another kiss and then darted into the hall, dancing as best she could from his grasping hands. It took Liz an hour to get comfortable. She frowned at Scott, untroubled by the burden of childbearing, fast asleep with his arms over his head, an Adonis in repose. She closed her eyes and the world faded to darkness and then to peace. A pitiful cry split the night. Liz groaned and groped across the bed. Her arm found a shoulder and she shook it. Honey, he didn't respond. She shook harder. Scott! She cracked an eyelid. He hadn't budged. It's your turn. Scott ran his tongue over his teeth. Okay. He sat up, rubbed his eyes, and stood. Yeah, um, I got it. He shuffled into the hall. She heard him murmur in the next room, and the wails turned to quiet sobs. She rolled onto her back. Damn it, now I have to pee. She struggled to her feet and shuffled to the bathroom. A minute later, she stepped into the nursery. Scott sat on the bed, cradling their three-year-old daughter in his arms. She blubbered around a thumb jammed between her teeth, her head a riot of tangled blonde hair. As Liz leaned against the door, Josie lifted her head. Mommy? Her brittle voice cracked, and her pale green eyes stared outward, unseeing in the lamplight. Yes, sweetie, Mommy's here. Josie held out her arms, grasping at the air. Scott stroked her head, but didn't let her go. Liz tiptoed across the cold wooden floor. Her knees ached as she knelt and rubbed her daughter's leg. Josie grabbed her head with both hands and hugged her cheek to cheek. Josie's voice was a bare whisper. It hurts, Mommy, a lot. I know, baby, I'm sorry. Josie choked back a sob. It, really? Liz shushed her, patting her head as her eyes rolled to Scott. Did Daddy give you medicine, sweetie? She felt the answering nod against her cheek. Do you want to sleep with us? Josie nodded again. Okay. Daddy's going to take you. Once situated in their bed, Josie's pain-racked breathing relaxed to a soft snore. Liz stifled tears of her own. Scott rubbed her stomach. The baby kicked, and he gave her a reassuring smile. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. She kissed his lips, then stroked her daughter's hair. I hope so. Josie grabbed her arm and held it, still asleep, as Liz slipped into a memory. Josie, just over two years old, pouted in a paper gown. She rubbed her eyes, and Liz pulled her hands from her face. Don't rub, sweetie. You'll get puffy. The pout turned to tears. Ouchie, Mommy! I know it's ouchy, Liz said, tousling her hair. That's why we're at the doctor. The door opened, and Dr. Schrock stepped through, his eyes glued to the transparency in his hand, his wizened brow furrowed. 
He gave Josie a perfunctory glance, then put the slide on the light panel mounted on the wall. He flipped a switch, backlighting the picture. Josie stopped blubbering and looked at the image. Liz recognized the human eye, parts of it anyway. Lens, retina, the big squishy white part. Without preamble, Schrock's finger stabbed an area behind the eye, a squid-looking thing in ugly gray scale. Do you know what this is? Liz shook her head. Josie copied her. This is your daughter's optic nerve. Do you see these gray areas? These black specks? She nodded. A healthy optic nerve would be all white, stark white. He poked at the image again. This, this is troubling. Her heart caught in her throat. Troubling? Yes, troubling. More spots on the retina, see? Liz didn't see them, but she didn't interrupt. They're signs of bilateral necrotic neuropathy. He held up a hand, cutting off her question unasked. It means the nerves in her eyes are dying. Liz looked from the specialist to her daughter and back. What? I mean, how? Why? Dr. Schrock shook his head. The pathogenesis is unknown. Common causes are acute papillitis, ischemia, or herpes simplex. None of these are present in your daughter's case. There doesn't appear to be a bacterial or viral component. Liz dropped to her knees and looked in Josie's eyes. Pale green, beautiful, full of life, perfect. Josie smiled at her, unaware. She looked at Dr. Schrock. What does this mean for her? She squeezed her daughter tight. The doctor frowned. Pain, which is partly treatable with medication, NSAIDs and the like. Blindness, which is not. Liz gasped. No, no, not my baby. Images of white canes and dogs and dark sunglasses flooded her mind. Not my baby. Schrock's frown deepened. I'm sorry. There's little we can do. She clutched Josie and cried as Dr. Schrock walked out. He left the door open. Scott was in the shower by the time she woke. Josie lay curled in the fetal position, her thumb in her mouth, her hair scattered across the pillow. Liz leaned over and kissed her temple. Josie's eyes fluttered open, unfocused and useless. Hi, Mommy. Good morning, baby. Liz stroked her hair. It's time to get up. Daddy has to work, and you have a doctor's appointment. As Josie guided herself to her room, one hand on the wall and the other out in front of her, Liz looked at the calendar on the nightstand. Her due date was two weeks away. It seemed like forever. By the time she got to the breakfast nook, Scott was gone. A vase on the table held a dozen roses, the bouquet lined with baby's breath and green cellophane. Scott's severe handwriting filled the blank card with two words. Just because. She grabbed a tissue to dab tears from her eyes, swiped a slim fast from the fridge, and waddled back up the stairs. Josie's shirt was right side out, but it clashed with her shorts. Wrong shirt, baby. Let's get you changed. Liz gasped as the contraction faded. She tried to remember her breathing, but it wasn't easy doing 80 in a 35. Scott swerved around a mail truck into oncoming traffic, then ducked back into the right lane. Hold on, girls. We're almost there. He blew through another stop sign. Gasping, Liz replied, Honey, you're going to get us killed. It's not that... She gritted her teeth as the next contraction gripped her. 
She realized she was holding her breath and gasped instead. It passed. Your daughter is in the car. Scott glanced at Josie in the rearview mirror, her knuckles white as she clutched the door handle and slowed to 50. Thank you, Liz said. They screeched to a halt in front of the blue emergency sign. Two attendants helped her out of the car as Scott hoisted Josie onto his hip. They put Liz onto a gurney, its front left wheel squeaking as they hurried down the hall. Liz saw the obstetrics sign, and under it, a smiling Dr. Faliha in a severe white skirt suit. How often? Faliha's voice was cheerful, as always. Every couple of minutes, Scott said. She smiled at Liz. Well, we'll be done in no time, then. She brushed Josie's cheek with her knuckles. Go with Valerie, dear. She'll take you to the room where we keep the toys. Get you a drink and some cookies. Scott passed their daughter to the waiting orderly. Liz heard Josie reply as they wheeled the gurney through the door. Cookies! Liz had never seen so much blood. Josie hadn't been like this. Messy, yes, as all births were, but not so red. She felt weak, and thanked God the epidural clonidine blocked most of the pain. The contractions were distant, suppressed, and Lamaze was easier. Soon. She pushed and pushed again, gritting her teeth. She gasped against the dulled agony, and a great relief flooded her. A tiny cry pierced the sterile air. She sighed, exhausted, as Felia cut the umbilical cord. Scott, ever the trooper, took the baby himself and brought it up so she could see. Even covered in blood and squirming, it had a thick head of auburn hair and a healthy pink complexion. Liz stared into startlingly blue eyes and smiled. Perfect. Scott passed the bundle to a male nurse, who swaddled it in a blue fleece blanket and wiped its face. He frowned as the baby grabbed his finger. Dr. Felia barked an order. Take it to Mendel and Harvesting and get it tagged. The nurse nodded and left, the birthing suite door flapping behind him. She turned to Liz. How do you feel? Liz bit her lip, thinking, Good. Sore, but good. Felia stripped off her gloves and dropped them into the biohazard bag. Excellent. It should be a short recovery. I'll inform Dr. Schrock. He'll be down in a bit. As she left, Scott grabbed Liz's hand. You did good, babe. He gave it a gentle squeeze. Real good. The squealing children made up for talent with enthusiasm. Josie had spent the afternoon running around with the other children, lost in the joy of play, and with some effort on the part of the parents, they had all settled down at the picnic tables. As the last discordant gasps of happy birthday faded into oblivion, Josie puffed her cheeks and blew out the four candles atop the princess cake. One stayed lit, but a second breath snuffed it. Josie tore into her presence, posing for the camera with each new gift. Uncle Max herded the three of them into a pose, snapped the shot, and showed the screen to Liz. Scott, tall and handsome, with a sexy ruggedness that any woman would envy, Liz, fit and trim, beaming at her daughter. Josie, mouth open wide with excitement, looked straight at the camera with her baby blue eyes. Perfect.
Thank you for that, Patrick. One more thing. Snapshot was originally published in the anthology Blood and Roses from Scarlet River Press, which was edited by Katie Nypris. I'm hoping I pronounced that correctly. Katie Nypris. You may purchase it at the Amazon site I've listed on our homepage. Snapshot was read for us tonight by Mr. Stephen Thomas Howell. Stephen is one of our author-narrators, of which we are so proud. He is a retired Army officer working toward an MFA in creative writing at the University of Tampa. He writes short stories, is working on his first novel, and lives in Valrico, Florida, with his wife, two sons, and one hyperactive dog. Thank you for tonight's effort, Stephen. Our next Stoker-nominated tale is by Mr. Michael Reeves. Michael Reeves has been a full-time fiction writer for the past 40 years. He won an Emmy, was nominated for a second Emmy for his work on Batman, the animated series, and he's been nominated for a Hugo, a Nebula, and a Writers Guild Award, among others. He considers himself to be semi-retired, and lives in the land of milk, honey, and geritol. Here is Michael Reeves' Code 666. One, the first thing Jack noticed as his shock senses came back online was a considerable amount of pain in his neck and shoulders. Next, almost nauseating in intensity, were the smells of antiseptic and blood. The antiseptic he was used to. It was part of the rig, every bit as much as the shiny chrome, the compartments filled with syringes, saline flushes, catheters, and tourniquets. The drug box holding norepinephrine, atropine, insulin, and dozens of other protocols. The blood scent he wasn't all that used to, seeing that it was his own. The wagon was rolling at a good clip. Jack felt it slow down, heard the siren snap out a brief warning rasp before it accelerated again. Too light outside to see if the rack was lit, but he suspected it wasn't. Code 2, then. Expedite. But not a hot response. So he probably wasn't dying. Good to know. Claire, his partner, was sitting beside the gurney. She smiled at him. Ironic, she said. Jack shook his head, or tried to. That was when he learned he was wearing a whiplash collar. No, he said. His voice sounded far away and echoing to him, and his mouth felt stuffed with cotton. He looked quizzically at Claire. You gave me morphine? She snorted. Right, I'm going to close you sked one after a suspected TBI. Dream on, or rather don't. I never went under, though I was swirly for a couple minutes. His arguments were pointless, and he knew it. No EMPT with the sense to spell malpractice was going to give a possible concussed patient any chem that would potentially put him or her out, because from there, it could be just a short stretch down the track to Comaville. Claire leaned in close. He could smell the tart sweetness of the gum on her breath and felt another surprisingly strong surge of nausea. Listen close, Mobley. You will not fucking die on me, understand? Yes, ma'am. 
He didn't know what else to say. He had to drop something into the intensifying silence, however. Anyway, like I said, it's not ironic. Claire looked puzzled. Her improbably red hair shimmered as she cocked her head quizzically, unwrapped a second stick of gum, and slipped it into her mouth. Then she meticulously folded the foil and tucked it into the watch pocket of her black 501s. You're an ambulance driver whose rig was totaled by a DUI. I'd call that ironic. I know you would, but it's not. He forgot his circumstances again, tried to sit up, fell back with a groan. Irony conveys the concept that's the exact opposite of whatever you'd expect, he told her. He searched his aching head for an example, and not surprisingly couldn't think of one. He tried anyway. Like if I said, yesterday, I rolled on a 5150 and you said, You're an asshole, she finished. Would that be ironic? Jack smiled sheepishly. No, that would be the truth. The two of them had started together. Jack Mobley in the rig. Jack couldn't be sure that it had rolled off the assembly line the same time he had completed one basic, but he liked to think so. It was oddly comforting. He remembered seeing it for the first time in the ER lot, gleaming bright and otherworldly in the halogen glare. The paint job was crisp and clean, the company logo almost three-dimensional, the chrome grips and stanchions unblemished by fingerprints and smudges, the aluminum diamond plate innocent of so much as a single molecule of blood, vomitous, urine, or serous fluid. Even the tread on the tires was brand new. This pristine condition hadn't lasted long, of course. Claire Jeffries was already an experienced EMTD when she'd been assigned to the new truck. The idea of riding a wagon that still had, however briefly, that showroom smell had appealed mightily to her. But the rookie who came with it, not so much. It wasn't that she disliked Jack personally. It was simply the same impatience and vague contempt the seasoned pro always feels for the amateur. Once she felt confident that Jack had fully assimilated what she called the awful truth, that their job had little, if anything, to do with saving people's lives, then she knew that the two of them could face together the 98.6% bullshit that EMTs had to wade through every day. So that was all right. The first few calls had been fairly routine, albeit with their share of stomach-churning moments for the new guy. Jack quickly learned about such things as the unofficial but all-too-descriptive Code Yellow and Code Brown, and the importance of seatbelts, graphically illustrated one night by the convertible full of drunken teens that had hit a tree at 75. When they'd arrived on the scene, there were only two bodies in the car. The other three were impaled on the branches overhead like macabre fruit. One of the boys had been flayed of his pants by the impact and subsequent impalement, and his bowels had let go as part of the universal atavistic fight-or-flight response. His underwear, stained and still dripping, hung from his shoe. Hey, look at that, Claire had deadpanned. Fruit of the limb underwear. The choice between losing his lunch and laughing, shocked, astonishment had been surprisingly hard. But he'd made the right decision. You had to laugh. Then there were the absurdly grotesque cases, such as the man who'd hired a prostitute to blow him while he was riding in a limo. Things were going pretty much okay, until the lady of the evening, for the first time in her life, had a grand mal seizure and clamped down, her jaws locking in a convulsive spasm that probably clocked in at over 300 PSI. The limo driver, distracted by the client's sudden blood-curdling screams, drove off the road, down an embankment, and into oncoming lane where the limo was hit three times and rolled 200 feet. 
The driver was killed, the prostitute miraculously uninjured, although thoroughly traumatized, and the client suffered considerable injuries from ricocheting around the compartments, not the least of which was an almost severed penis. You had to laugh. You had to laugh because it was either grow with a shell thicker than the carapace of a hundred-year-old sea turtle or go fucking insane. Those were the choices, and there wasn't a lot of room for nuance. The door stayed shut or swung wide. It was either TV or real and not surprising. Most of those who lasted opted for the former. EMTs, doctors, firefighters, police, morticians, and all the other professions that dealt with the dead on a quotidian basis, they all had one thing in common— and a reverence for those cooling pieces of meat that had once been animated by personalities, souls, or whatever you wanted to label them. Their humor was mordant, tasteless, shocking, and ultimately, their salvation. The situations weren't always that bizarre, of course, but what they did have in common, pretty much all of them, was a life-or-death urgency. It was called by various names, the Golden Hour, the Sunset Hour, or perhaps more tellingly, the Magic Hour. Whatever the nomenclature, they all meant the same thing. If the patients could be stabilized and lifted, the term used to apply to medvac kilos on a war line, now it simply meant getting the dump to the ER stat. To treatment within an hour of first response, his or her chances were about as good as could be expected for survival. The survival probability dropped precipitously after that first 60 minutes. Jack had seen patients go from stable or fair, to critical, in less than five minutes. They'd once brought in a knife victim who'd had his femoral artery cut. They'd got him stable, they'd thought, but had neglected to notice a very slight nick in the brachial artery from the same blade. The latter had popped during offload. The guy was dead before an intern had noticed the rapidly spreading red stain beneath the shock blanket and the corresponding BP drop from the bleeder. Look at it this way, Claire said. We did our job. Jack stared at her. How so? She shrugged. We delivered a stable patient to the ER. Jack shook his head in disbelief. But in a manner of speaking, it was true. You couldn't get more stable than dead. Like they said in the ICU, bleeding always stops. 2. Claire was good at her work and apparently enjoyed it. She seemed never, or at least hardly ever, at a loss for what to do in an emergency situation, once, when they were both 10-10 and had no equipment, Jack saw her save the life of an assault vic with a crushed windpipe by using a rusty razor blade to give the guy a voodoo tracheotomy and the hollow barrel of a ballpoint pen to hold the ragged incision open until the responders arrived. The more dire the situation, the calmer and more collected she was. Jack thought she had a great potential career in emergency medicine and told her so once. She'd agreed, but not with the enthusiasm he might have expected. Money's not bad, God knows, she answered. And there's job security. Plus, you're always helping people, always good for karma, he'd responded. Claire had looked at him for so long, he'd started to wonder if she'd had a microstroke or a TIA. Then, in a voice as dry as cremated ashes, she said, Karma, right. They never spoke of her career again. They didn't speak of Jack's, either, because they both knew that he didn't really have one. He was cool in a crisis, and he could pilot the rig well enough. He was a decent paramedic who could, as one of the nurses once said, tell a spleen from a bladder without having to refer to a diagram scribbled on his palm. But that was about the extent of it. Everyone knew that Claire had the spark. Jack was just the driver. 
or so it was until the day when the drunk in the classic Fairlane came from out of nowhere while they were Code 3 through an intersection and sprayed styrets, ampules, bandages, and meds, not to mention a copious amount of Jack's blood, all over the glistening black asphalt at 3 p.m. on a scorching summer day. It's pretty much an uncontested truism that doctors, nurses, at all, make the worst patients, and Jack Mobley did nothing to subvert that particular paradigm. He was a pain in the ass about taking his meds. He kibitzed whenever they injected into his shunt. He bitched about the food, the temperature, the bathing. He had a broken leg, a punctured lung, secondary to a shattered rib, and a concussion. And you're lucky that's all you have, Claire told him. He hit you dead bang at nearly 35, so stop being such a prick to everyone and be glad you're alive. Clara herself had suffered nothing more than a mild concussion and a technicolor ear. She'd been riding and back with the victim, getting his vitals. That poor bastard, splinted and strapped to the gurney and bound for the ICU for nothing worse than a dislocated patella, had come out by far the worst. He wound up a quad with his spine severed in four places. The drunk driver in the fair lane survived with hardly a scratch, due to two reasons. The first was that he was drunk, which, as everyone from... Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The 20-year department head down to their rankest intern nose often lets you squirt and slither like plastic man through accidents that could put a sober man in a cast from his toenails to his hairline. The second reason was that he was driving a 1954 piece of Detroit iron that could take on a German tiger tank without breaking a metaphorical sweat. Jack was, he knew, indeed lucky. He didn't feel lucky, though. He just felt scared because he shared one more prejudice in common with just about everyone in the various fields of the medical profession— that hospitals were the last place on the planet one should be if sick. 3. In the last 48 hours before he was discharged, Jack was upgraded to stable. This meant several things, the most important of which was that, by the strange logic of the ICU, he was no longer accorded the comparative luxury of a room to himself. The official designation of his new room was semi-private, which meant there was room for one other patient. When they'd gurneyed Jack in, the privacy curtain was open and the other bed empty. 
He'd hoped it'd stay that way until he was discharged, but no such luck. He was awakened just after midnight by a hoarse whisper coming from the other bed. The curtains were closed now, and the lights dimmed. But someone was obviously occupying the bed, and judging from the stentorian rasp of his voice, he was much older than Jack. Do you see them? His new neighbor's voice had the phlegmy congestion of one who'd spent a good deal of his life prone. There was another accent as well, which Jack couldn't place, one which clipped the consonants at the end of sentences sharply and precisely, like neatly trimmed fingernails. There wasn't even a question of Jack responding. The last thing he wanted to do was to open himself up to an endless dialogue in the midnight hour with some old fart who was at least semi-delusional, judging by his opening conversational gambit. Something told Jack that the old man was a frequent flyer, a term applied by staffers to those who checked in with the imaginary illnesses because they craved the attention. Jack had hauled a fair number of such folk in the rig to the ER over the past few months. What they did with them afterwards wasn't his problem, but it was beginning to look increasingly like this one was. Do you see them? The voice was louder, the tone more peremptory. Jack reluctantly realized that it was no good pretending he was asleep. The old guy was on to him. See who? he asked. Enkreichengeisen. The foreign words crystallized the accent for him. German. He didn't recognize the subject of the sentence, however, his experience with the language being limited to a semester in college three years ago. Curious, in spite of himself, Jack made a vaguely interrogative grunt. Bitte, the... The old voice, full of creaks and hesitations that for some reason made Jack think of a sun-dried piece of leather, paused, searching for the right word. The... Sick spirits. Spirits. Nictoire. The voice was silent for a moment, once again... Jack presumed, leafing through the pages of an unfamiliar mental dictionary. When he spoke again, his tone held an unmistakable certainty. Ghosts! The sick ghosts! Jack had no idea how to reply. He supposed that if one might see sick ghosts anywhere, a hospital would be the logical place. And one thing he'd learned about psychotics was that, contrary to popular belief, their fantasies were nearly always logical if you were willing to give them their initial delusion. David Berkowitz's compulsion to kill, for example, made a twisted sort of sense once you accepted the admittedly hard-to-swallow premise that his neighbor's dog was possessed by a demon who controlled him. Or take the granddaddy of all psychopaths, Charles Manson. Once you were across that particular Rubicon of irrationality that equated killing pregnant starlets and other members of the Hollywood elite with legitimate protest of the Vietnam War, and the military-industrial complex, a certain bizarre logic followed, and there was probably already a bunk with your name on it at the old Spawn Ranch. But Jack wasn't willing to take these leaps of faith. No thank you. He'd heard of poltergeists, of course, but he suspected that Krankengeisten was some bizarre Teutonic portmanteau word that the guide invented. He made no reply and heard nothing further from his mysterious neighbor, not even the raspy breathing he'd noticed earlier. For a moment, Jack felt concerned. What if the fellow had suffered an M.I. or something similar? He located the station buzzer, wondering if he should page the night nurse. He looked at the wall clock and realized with a shock that it was 2.40. He'd taken a Vicodin for the leg pain over an hour ago, 
and a half hour after that he'd been given a milligram of clonazepam to help him sleep. It was as if the one-two punch had just been waiting for the realization. Jack abruptly felt a huge load of cotton bricks hit and bury him. Four. At the behest of his professors in his last year of college, Jack had read several novels of classic horror. The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, and, of course, Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus. He'd enjoyed Wells' book the most. He hadn't expected to like Dracula, as he'd never been fond of epistolary storytelling, but the book had surprised him. It had an unexpected humor, and it moved along at a steady pace and kept him immersed, whether an exchange of letters, diary entries, or whatever other medium the author had chosen. The only one of the four that he had found incredibly, unremittingly dull was Frankenstein. Perhaps he was used to the inarticulate pathos of Karloff in the old cinematic versions of this tale. Certainly Boris could convey volumes more with a poignant look, even concealed under the thick slabs of Jack Pierce's mortician's clay makeup, than the acres of exposition that Shelley had her character declaiming on every page. To make matters worse, she used pronouns that were archaic even in her day, thou, thy, thine, and so on. The result, as far as Jack was concerned, was a slow, cumbersome, and decidedly non-scary book. He remembered scenes from the other three tales quite vividly. Dracula crawling up the wall of his castle just after feeding, bloated and corpulent as a gigantic leech, for example. He'd even had nightmares once or twice as a result. But the only things he recalled from Shelley's magnum opus was the ending in the Arctic and the scene where a weary Dr. Frankenstein is awakened abruptly by the sight of his hideous creation standing at his bedside, silently appraising him. That was powerful stuff, he thought. And so he was understandably upset to find himself suddenly awakened in a replay of that scene with himself as Frankenstein. It was a sudden jangling sound that jerked him from his drug-induced sleep, and the jolt of adrenaline that immediately followed nearly put him into a cardiac overdrive. The rattling that had wakened him had been the metal hooks on the curtain's runner being suddenly and violently yanked aside to reveal the creature that now loomed over him, glaring. In appearance it did somewhat resemble Frankenstein's fictional creation, the corpse-like pallor, the emaciated limbs, the long patchy hair. An oversized gown hung from the skeletal frame like a house robe on a drying rack. After an eternal moment of blood-freezing terror, Jack realized that this apparition had to be the old man from the neighboring bed, who had evidently grown tired of waiting for an answer. I'm Drankengeisten, the revenant hissed at him. Although he'd figured out who it was, any lingering doubts were dispelled by a quick, sidelong glance at the room's other bay. The curtain had been pulled back there as well, and the bed was empty. The knowledge did little to reassure Jack of his immediate safety. Even though the old man looked like he weighed about 95 pounds and his age could match his weight, still the incredible malevolence in his face sent Jack scrambling back the length of the hospital bed. Instinctively, he groped for some kind of weapon or alarm and his fingers found the station buzzer. His brain screaming like a smoke alarm, Jack closed his eyes and pushed the button. Silence. In retrospect, he realized everything had been pretty quiet all along. It was, after all, the graveyard shift in the stable care unit. Save for the usual background noises, the almost unnoticeable hum of the ventilation system, and the muted pings and beeps of monitors, it was very quiet. 
He remembered the nightmare of a few moments ago as loud and terrifying, but now he realized that 90% of that had been in his head. Impelled by some obscure sense of renewed safety, he opened his eyes. The curtain completely shielded the bay, as it had when he'd gone to sleep earlier. The old man wasn't in sight, even as Jack registered this and realized also that he would surely have heard the distinctive rattle the curtain made when it was pulled closed. It was yanked open again. Jack flinched, but it was only the night nurse. She noticed his wariness. You okay? Jack nodded. He didn't trust how his voice might sound. She looked at the clipboard. You're due for more clonazepam. Okay. His gaze involuntarily followed her as she ran the curtain back around the bay, and he noticed for the first time the old man's bed. The curtain was wide open. The bed was made up, the sheets neat and clean. Hospital corners, he thought. He realized she had said something. What? I said, anything else? How about some bourbon to wash it down with? She raised an eyebrow and snorted, then yanked the curtain the final few feet. Jack sat in an upright fetal position, resisting the surprisingly strong urge to rock back and forth. He very much did not want to see her look at him with that look that says, maybe this one belongs over on the psych ward. When the nurse brought him the small green pill, he took it with a swallow of tap water. He nodded his thanks. He was very much afraid that if he spoke, if he said anything at all, he would find himself asking what had happened to the old man. And the possibility seemed equally real that she might ask him what he was talking about. The last patient to occupy that bed had been discharged weeks ago, and Jack didn't want to hear her say that, or anything remotely close to that. Not at all. Five, treat him and street him. That appeared to be the prevailing policy in every hospital across the land nowadays. As soon as one was adjusted to be mobile and relatively infection-free, it was, here's your hat, what's your hurry? Jack was issued a pair of adjustable aluminum crutches, a booklet of exercises for his broken left tibia, and a script for more Vicodin, two refills. Never mind that he couldn't walk more than a city block without waves of fiery pain thundering down his leg. Never mind that if he inhaled more than moderately, he felt as if someone was knifing him in his lower right quadrant. It wasn't like he was even allowed to breathe shallowly. To do so was to run the risk of a lung infection and possible lobar pneumonia. You're young and in good shape. You'd probably survive, the discharged nurse had told him. But Jack couldn't help but notice the tiny spin of doubt she put on, probably. The unspoken codicil seemed to be, if you're too dumb to follow directions and die as a result, don't come whining back to us. And Kreikengeisten. He was halfway across the parking lot before he saw it. Parked, with spaces on either side, as if the other rigs were only too happy to accommodate its privacy. It was the start of another long, slow summer evening in Los Angeles, and Jack thought that, in the sanguine hydrocarbon light, the vehicle before him looked almost as if it had been painted with blood. Its true color, he would learn later, was a soft eggshell, but that wasn't how it appeared at first sight. It had a long, sleek chassis with scalloped fenders and the flowing lines of classic art deco. The hood ornament, tilted at about 30 degrees, was a rod of Asclepius. A snake twined about a staff. One of the first things he had learned in medical school was that this, not the caduceus, was the universal symbol of medicine. Wow, he said, stopping to admire it. Meet the new rig, Claire said. A Santa Ana 
The dry desert wind, responsible for most of the city's destructive fires, began to blow softly, rustling palm fronds from overhead. Definitely not the same as the old rig. Hell of a lot older than the wagon we had, Jack said. It was, he guessed, easily ten years older than the fair lane that had done the best to obliterate Jack's previous rig, along with Jack. Like it? There was a sly undertone to Claire's voice that should have warned him. Yeah, Jack strolled around it, admiring it. There were three red Grecian crosses painted on it, one on the rear door, which opened like a hatch, one on the top, between the light rack and the growler, and one on the spacious hood. Beneath this last one was the word ambulance, painted in mere reverse text. Nowhere could he find any indication of the make or model or even the year. The engine under the hood was undoubtedly a V8, and he noticed that seat belts had been bolted to the leathern front seats, no doubt as a part of the vehicle's restoration. Jack had to suppress a snort of laughter when he saw the electric coil lighter and ashtray, which were part of the console just beneath the CB radio. He noticed no cab bags or, indeed, any sort of trauma response equipment, not even a doctor's black bag, in the glove box, perhaps, or under the dash. Jack went around to the back and peered through the rear window. He was surprised at how relatively spartan the interior was. On the left side were two cot platforms to which stretchers could be affixed. On the right side was a fold-up bench with restraints. On the floor next to the right wheel well were two small wooden rectangles with leather straps. Their purpose mystified him, although after a few moments he tentatively assigned them the role of wheel blocks. On the forward wall, just above the door to the driver's compartment, was a clock face with large Arabic numerals. Below that was a small pump-action sink with a mirrored cabinet above it. Clamped to another cabinet beneath the sink was an antiquated blood pressure cuff and bladder, a stethoscope, and a head strap reflector. Jesus, he murmured. Where are the leeches and the miasma sticks? Don't worry, we've only had it for a day. We'll get it stocked up as much as possible before we roll with it. Jack turned and looked at her. I cannot help but notice an inappropriate pronoun in those statements. Inappropriate? I'm not the one who got a practically brand new truck turned into modern art. Oh, and this be my punishment? I'm cursed to ferry sick ghosts across the sticks in this motorized skiff? Claire looked thoughtful. Interesting image, she said. But as usual, it's all about you. What about your partner, who's being dragged along in your wake? It's two to a rig, remember? That's why they're called paramedics. Jack finished the hoary old joke in unison with her. Neither of them laughed. Tell me you're kidding, he said. He waved a hand at the ancient vehicle. Even if you could bring it up to code, there's no way we could stock it well enough to... Okay, I'm kidding. Meet even basic, he stopped. Wait, what? Kidding. It's part of an exhibit on the history of medicine. When I saw it parked here, I couldn't resist. She peered closely at him. What, did you really think they'd put us on the streets in a rig like this? It's one step up from a horse and buggy. Jack eyed her suspiciously before he could pass judgment on her sincerity. However, he noticed Claire was suddenly paling. Her hair, a ginger burgundy, became even more vivid in contrast with her white cheeks. She staggered then sat down on the curbstone, putting her head between her legs. Claire, hey, are you all... He didn't get to finish the sentence. His own vision collapsed into a black hole. Time slowed and stretched, and sounds dopplered down to match. 
He was vaguely aware of having fallen to his hands and knees beside Claire, asphalt warm and sticky beneath his hands, but before he could try to speak, the tiny black and white image at the bottom of the well in his head shrank still more and then winked out completely. Jack started to wonder if Claire had blacked out as well, but before he could even finish formulating the thought, the blackness around him was complete. As consciousness slowly returned, Jack found himself thinking of one of the orderlies, a Hispanic in his early fifties named Jesus Alvarez. He'd been employed by the hospital for nearly 17 years when, late one night when emptying the trash, he'd quietly dropped dead of a myocardial infarction. He couldn't have chosen a better place to have a heart attack. Literally, just outside the doors of the cardio unit, less than three minutes after an intern watched him fall and called Code Blue, a doctor was putting the paddles on Alvarez and cranking him up again. They'd kept him overnight for observation and had found no irregularity. He'd asked to be discharged. As he was walking out of the ICU, he keeled over again. Again, they shocked him back to the land of the living. This time he made it all the way to the parking lot before dying a third time. That had been the last one. Alvarez's heart, jolted back to functionality once more, had kept beating for the last three years. He'd been told to cut out his two-pack-a-day habit and his wife's beef taquitos fried in lard, among other dietary insults, and had been strongly suggested that he walk the eight blocks to work rather than drive his old VW. He had followed none of these suggestions, and his EKGs and MRIs had shown no change. Members of the staff looked at him, scratched their heads, and smiled uncomfortably the few times he made eye contact. The only other difference, of course was that he was no longer addressed by the staff as Jesus. The Hispanic pronunciation had been changed to the anglicized form of Jesus. It didn't matter to Alvarez. He answered to either pronunciation. Jack was back in recovery, lying on a gurney, a glucose saline drip stuck in his arm, and outside of a dull headache, he felt pretty much as he had before he passed out. His neck was relaxed, his head lolling somewhat to the left, so that when he opened his eyes, he was looking at the wall. It was bare, save for a grounded wall socket. Jack stared at it, noticing abstractly that, like all three-prong outlets in hospitals, it had been installed upside down so that the grounding bar receptacle was on the top and two parallel slits for the polarized poles were underneath. He'd asked, back when he'd first gotten the job, why this was apparently de rigueur, not just in this hospital, but everyone he'd ever been in. An orderly had explained that it was done due to the admittedly remote possibility that a scalpel or some other metallic bit from a surgeon's tray or any facile conductor might fall and land in the plug in such a way as to bridge the poles and so short out the circuit. Jack had not known, initially, whether to be impressed or amused at this extreme evidence of bureaucratic tunnel vision. Later that same day, however, when he brought the rig back from his latest call, he very nearly ran over an old woman lying in a crumpled heap on the blacktop about 30 feet from an old beat-up Nissan, the front bumper of which was wrapped around a lamppost. The car was still running and the driver's door was open. She'd thrown a brain embolism while driving past the hospital. She'd managed to steer most of the way through the parking lot before hitting the lamppost, after which she got out and crawled. She died less than 20 feet from the ER entrance. No one, evidently, had heard the crash or seen the old woman trying to crawl to the doors until she'd stopped moving. More precious moments were wasted arguing the legal ramifications of carrying her through the doors, since no one was there to speak for her. During the argument, she had died. She was 82 years old. The old saying, penny wise and pound foolish, 
did tend to spring to mind. Hey, partner. Seven. Claire smiled somewhat wanly up at Jack. Hey, she whispered in reply. She poked one hand out from beneath the blankets, and he caught her fingers in his. How are you? he asked. She shrugged. Me? Fine, except for this pesky problem passing out whenever I try to stand. Not sure what's up with that. Jack nodded. Nobody else was sure either. She checked out fine in every other way, but she kept going orthostatic when she raised her head higher than her heart. As long as she stayed prone with her feet elevated an inch or so, she was fine, her BP solidly within normal limits. The minute she started any aspirations towards the third dimension, however, it was like someone opening a petcock in her occipital area and draining the blood from her head. Her MRI showed no signs of a fistula, TIA, or other trauma. Maybe you just pissed off the rig by calling it a horse and buggy, he suggested, with an uncomfortable laugh. Claire laughed too, but hers was even more uncomfortable, and he could have sworn for a moment a look of absolute terror crossed her face. She pleaded exhaustion, and he apologized and left the room. When he looked back from the entrance, she was already asleep. Jack was worried about her. Her hypotension was completely idiopathic and frustrating as hell because there was nothing further anybody could do. Not even a surgeon, to whom every problem usually looks like a steak, waxes overly enthusiastic about unzipping someone's head without a specific reason. In Claire's case, however, there was no indication for any procedure. All they could do was let her take up bed space while they monitored her and waited for any change, either for better or worse. After a while, one began to look as good as the other and then she died. It made no sense, and there was no point to it, as is usually the case with death. Jack hadn't even been there for her final moments. He'd been off campus, choking down a Whopper at Burger King. When he'd returned, one of the candy stripers at the nurse's station told him that Carrie had flatlined 40 minutes ago, and they'd been unable to resuscitate. She'd named him as next of kin, he was told. The worker's breezy tone punctuated by a startlingly loud crack of the gum she was chewing with bovine enthusiasm. So, would he mind signing for her? Jack scribbled his name on the forms, his mind utterly stunned, like a polaxed seer at the slaughterhouse. They asked if he wanted to see her, and he shook his head. He wandered the corridors for a while, noticing at one point that he was at the oncology station, and then, after what felt like only a couple of steps, standing bemused before the doors of the fMRI department, which was on the other side of the hospital. There's a lot to be said for shock, he thought. His mind grayed out again. When he snapped back to reality once more, he was near the ICU exit, and Claire was sitting in the waiting room. She was in the front row, her legs casually crossed. Her skin was pale, slightly cyanotic, on her face and upper body. Her gown had been torn open in front and he could see the conducting fluid that facilitated the defibrillator's current still glistening on her flat breasts. Her legs and lower thighs were a mottled blue-black with purple highlights. She looked like she'd been brutally beaten, but Jack knew it was only lividity, the settling of blood in the body's lower extremities, gravity's triumph over heart finally and forever stilled. Jack simply stood there, staring at her. He noticed that she was slightly transparent, like a double exposure effect in an old film. The example that came to mind was Topper, although Claire, it must be admitted, was a far cry from Constance Spennett. But as far as that went, he wasn't exactly Cary Grant either. He suddenly realized something else unusual about her. Claire was gradually growing more solid in his vision. 
When he'd first noticed her, he could clearly see the blue plastic of the chair beneath her thighs and the scuffed linoleum beneath her feet. It was gradually becoming more difficult to see them. As she sat there, staring at the floor, she appeared to be regaining her corporeality. There were several other people in the waiting room, Jack noticed, as well as standing in line before the admittance window, whom were solid but who, as he watched, began to fade away. The various sounds of their speech and movement slowly grew softer, fading out along with their solidity, and there were others, quite a few actually, fading into view from nothing at the same time. He saw the old German, the animated cadaver who scared the living shit out of him about a week ago, along with the old woman who died in the parking lot. The German saw him as well and approached. He was still wearing the gown, but now he looked more like someone aged and pathetic than the terrifying visage Jack had seen when the curtain had been savagely pulled back. In fact, he seemed almost humble. My apologies, he said, his congestion and accent making the words almost as incomprehensible as his German had been. I did not know at the time who you were. I don't understand, Jack said. I'm nobody special. I... But the gaunt man only smiled and slipped away into the increasing crowd so quickly that Jack couldn't follow his path. Nevertheless, he felt he almost understood the rationale behind it all. He realized then that they were all looking at him, all the sick ghosts, as if they expected something of him. At a loss, Jack looked again at Claire. This time she looked up and met his gaze. There you are, she said, as if he'd been keeping her waiting. Come on, let's get to work. She stood and headed past him for the sliding doors with emergency on them in big red letters. He caught her arm, stopping her. He wasn't surprised by how it felt. Cool, but definitely alive. Please, Claire, he said. Where are all these people coming from? What do they want from? He realized suddenly that her arm was rapidly becoming warmer in his grasp, painfully so in fact. He released his grip just in time to keep from being burned. He noticed something else, too. Her hair was beginning to burn. At first he thought it was a trick of the fluorescence, but after a moment's thought that made no sense either, they tended to bleach color out, not intensify it. He stared at her in utter disbelief. Each strand of hair was a slightly different shade now, and all were writhing upward as if trying to escape her skull. He looked at her eyes. Normally, they were green, a pure, steady, level green. But now, looking closer, Jack could see tiny flames, almost too small to see, dancing behind the irises and in the darkness of the pupils. He'd smelled the acrid scent of burning hair many times. He caught no whiff of it now, but her hair was still on fire. Claire grinned at him. Jack was afraid of looking too closely at her teeth, at how unnaturally white and pointed they were. Her skin was also a subtle but noticeable shade of red, although in this case he had to admit that any color would be an improvement on the lifeless fishbelly white she had been before. Claire saw the look on his face and frowned. It was only a slight frown, but for some reason he felt his marrow chill. Too much? she asked. He noticed that her skin was not as vibrant as before. Her hair also wasn't burning quite so hot. Why, Claire? he asked. Why us? Why not you? A familiar voice asked from behind him. Jack turned to see Jesus Alvarez, the maintenance guy. The Latino shrugged. They didn't take me for the job because I was too turco. I wouldn't stay dead. Jack noticed without much surprise that of all the remnants trying to attract his attention, Alvarez was by far the most insubstantial. It was like looking through an unwashed window. 
The sick ghosts clamored around him like third-world tourists importuning a bus driver. Too many, he found himself saying. You won't all fit. Desperately turned to Claire and asked, Where are we going anyway? Does it matter? Claire asked. They have to get there, and you're the one who'll do it, as many trips as it takes. Jack understood then, finally, and it made sense. After all, all he was, had ever been actually, was the driver. As he took the first wave out to the rig, Jack saw Claire get into the seat beside him. She grinned slightly, shrugged. Jack noticed she had put another piece of gum in her mouth and was rolling the tinfoil wrapper into a tiny ball between thumb and forefinger. Like you once said, she told him, job security. Jack watched, fascinated as the ball became a drop of molten silver that fell from between her fingers. The splash on the floor mat. Thank you for that, Michael. And as Code 666 was originally published in Gordon Van Gelder's The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, thank you for that, Gordon. In addition to Michael Reeves' efforts as novelist, short story, and screenwriter, Mr. Reeves currently maintains a blog concerning his experiences in dealing with Parkinson's disease and its effects. That's at http colon slash slash michaelreeveswriter.blogspot.com. And as with all our URLs, that will be on the tales to terrify.com homepage. Michael Reeves Code 666 was read for us tonight by Mr. Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen has been a frequent presence here in the Nook for quite some time now. He's a customer service professional living in Northern Virginia. He has a degree in culinary arts and is an avid fan of fiction and board games and enjoys hiking Virginia's Old Rag Mountain. In addition to all that, he works in information technology and recently began volunteering in prisons. The most recent information I've gotten about him is that he's the new co-editor at Tales to Terrify and that he likes unflavored loose-leaf teas. Thanks again, Stephen. And that children of the night will... Oh, no, no, no. Ah, yes. Yes, yes, one more thing. Last week, I made an error. I frequently make errors, but this was what is called a doozy. Last week, I blithely told you that Edward Ahern's Cat tale, Here Kitty, was bodied forth by none other than the No Sleep podcast host, David Cummings. Well, not so you'd notice it. For reasons known only to the gods of the pods, we had double-booked the narration of Here Kitty, and when I auditioned the reading before putting the show together, my audio recording program plucked David's excellent reading of the story. But when I assembled the show, the recording thereof, I somehow picked up the other 
recording, this one also ably performed by Matt Callens. My apologies to both David and Matt. Here's what I should have said about Mr. Callens. Matt Callens is a high school teacher living in New Zealand, and that was pretty obvious from the reading of the tale. He is the co-author of the SJV award-winning Mansfield with Monsters, a collection of Catherine Mansfield's stories adapted to include supernatural, horror, and science fiction elements. Mansfield with Monsters is published by Steam Press and is available on Amazon in bookstores throughout New Zealand or directly from the publisher at www.steampress.co.nz. So thank you belatedly, Matt, for a fine job, and thank you, David, for an equally fine job. And my sincere apologies to both of you and to you out there in the nook and in Tales to Terrify land. And that will be that for this week. Tonight, we've had a third of this year's Stoker-nominated short stories. Over the next two weeks, we'll hear four more tales. But now, now it is time for you to be up and doing bright and chipper and to be off with you. Redress, rewrap yourselves, stack your bowls and cups. Don't forget sweaters and galoshes and other such things as you may have brought. And as you wend your ways homeward tonight, be careful. Not everyone you meet on the streets here in the District of Wonders is what he or she may seem. Remember, there's a new hood just over the way. You're used, of course, to ghosts, vampires, zombies, and other such creatures. Cubs fans, good grief, ye gads. But what these new denizens may be, what they may bring, well, only time will tell. Think about it as you trudge alone in the dark, and time dwelling on darkness always brings such pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. About the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.